0: and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10. And I am excited this morning. Those of you who know me know that I am an expositional preacher. I like to start in verse 1, chapter 1, and walk through. I am far less comfortable preaching topically. However, uh, there are times where it's necessary, and You still exposit the passage, but of course, when I um, deal with passages, you all know, um, we always have to spend a lot of time catching you up on the context. Well, fortunately, um, when you preach expositionally, you don't really have to do that um, because the context is what you already preached. Uh, You started with the context and you preached the context and now you're preaching based upon what you've already preached. And so I love preaching expositionally. We are jumping back into 1 Corinthians 10 today, and it's been a long time since we've been in 1 Corinthians. It's been six weeks since we've been in 1 Corinthians. And so I'm going to actually have to catch you up to speed a little bit. I just want to remind you where we were. Um, Certainly all the sermons are online, and you can listen to those um, to catch up if you need. But we'll start out with a little bit of introduction, a little bit of reminder, and then jump into the bulk of our sermon, which will be in 1 Corinthians 10, and we'll be looking at Uh, verse 15, all the way through chapter 11, verse 1. Since uh, 1 Corinthians 5, in fact, we've been dealing with many topics. However, they have all surrounded really one main overriding topic. And that overriding topic has been liberty. The Christian life being characterized in one of three ways. Legalism, we'd say on the far right, License on the far left. And then in the middle, balance, the place where God would have each of us to be, is that place of Christian liberty where we are using the liberties that we have in Christ but not abusing the liberties that we have in Christ. We're not legalists where we are saying we don't have any liberties in Christ, where we are using the, the strict standards that we have as a means by which to earn favor with God or are fine standing with God, nor are we those who would take license and use the liberty that we have been given in Christ to um, take advantage of our grace and as Romans chapter 6, verse 1 says, to continue in sin that grace may abound. To follow our own lusts, to follow ourself, to follow what we want, and then to chalk it up to grace that we're allowed to do that because we're under the blood of Jesus Christ. God wants us in between. And that's where we recognize the expectations that God has placed upon us, what the scriptures call the law of Christ. But we also recognize that God has given us liberty within Christ to live this life. And we sit in the middle in a place where we're using our liberties in order to minister, where we're using our liberties in order to evangelize, where we're using our liberties in order to live that, that joyful life that the Lord would have us to live but we are not abusing our liberties and therefore falling into sin or falling into a poor testimony among Christians or the world. In many ways, Paul's final words here in 1 Corinthians 10 appear to be the culmination of his thoughts on Christian liberty and responsibility. This whole time, Paul has been heavily emphasizing the reality of our liberty and that when we talk about our liberty... The the operative word is really responsibility. Throughout 1 Corinthians 5 through 10, every time he's addressing liberty, it's with the focus on how can you restrain or limit your liberty for the cause of Christ. It's not talking about what liberties we have. He almost assumes by nature that you know your liberties. What he's trying to do, at least in the Corinthian church, is remind them that their liberties ought to be restrained for the good and for the the praise of of Christ. And the warning initially took the form of of various circumstances. You recall in chapter 5, Paul presented the topic of sexuality as it pertains to liberty versus license. You recall the man that was fornicating with his father's wife, most likely his stepmother. In chapter 6, uh, that was going to law with a brother. And Paul addressed uh, the civil liberties that we have versus the spiritual liberties. That just because we have a civil liberty does not necessarily mean that we ought to use that civil liberty. Perhaps the spiritual liberties or the spiritual responsibilities we have need to override the civil liberties that we've been given. In other words, not taking a brother to court is, is the context of chapter 6. Chapter 7 was about marriage and liberty. And how a man or a woman is free to marry. And Paul's heavy emphasis in chapter 7, in fact, was, I encourage you not to marry. Um, chapter 8 was about food and liberty. Not necessarily about the, the the food in general, but about eating meat offered to idols. And that being that broader concept, which will come up again, of the idea of uh, testimony. And chapter 9 was ministry and liberty. And this kind of played off of the idea of eating meat offered to idols. And Paul was talking about his own ministry and how he has limited his liberties in certain areas and lived within his liberties in other places so that he could best and most effectively communicate the gospel of Christ. Not that we're changing the message. Not that it's not an end justifies the means. If you're wondering, Pastor, are you really saying that? Go back and listen to the messages. I don't have time to review it all today. But that... He is willing to eat meat offered to idols in certain circumstances, whereas in certain ones he would not. He restrains his liberty for the cause of the gospel, or he lives in his liberty for the cause of the gospel, never stepping over the bounds into sin. And then chapter 10, I would say, is a summary chapter. And you recall last time we were in 1 Corinthians, we preached verses um, 1 through 14 of chapter 10, and we rested our focus upon the sins of Israel. As Paul was presenting them. And Paul used them as an example that we should hold today. Now, if we were to just kind of take a, if we were to zoom out, we've been digging in pretty deep. If we were to zoom out on what Paul is doing here for just a few minutes, we might find that Paul intended indeed this chapter to be a summary or to be an emphasis upon the tremendous consequences That come when we abuse our liberties in Christ. When we take Christian license. That was the problem in the Corinthian church. In the Galatian church, they'd fallen back against the law. They'd gone legalistic. In the Corinthian church, they'd gone, if I may use the term liberal. Not in a political sense. They'd gone liberal in their theology. They had drifted toward license. And so he's correcting them on license. You want to correct a person on legalism? You go to Galatians. You want to correct a person on license? You go to 1 Corinthians. And so these Corinthians were living as believers and yet persisting in sin because they felt themselves free in Christ. And Paul gave very, very strong warnings from the example of Israel which show us that even though they were God's people and we too are God's people as a church, God will not hesitate to give us both the natural and the divine consequences of our sin. In other words, we're not off the hook of chastening just because our daddy is the king. It's kind of how we can think sometimes. You read in the newspaper about the kid who gets arrested for DUI and then nothing ever happens to him because his daddy's rich or powerful and you say, oh, Another kid that got off because his daddy's rich. Another kid that got off because his daddy's someone important. Oh, another NFL player who got arrested, and then all of a sudden the charges were mysteriously dropped because they're an NFL player. And you see those things. And we can kind of be that way in our Christian lives sometimes, can't we? Daddy's, Daddy's the king. We can get off the hook. And Paul is reminding us in 1 Corinthians 10 that it doesn't work that way with God. And so we were warned in those first 13-14 verses about the clear consequences of straying into the idea that liberty gives us license to sin, and we applied it with the five points that you'll see on the next slide. Paul's final words of appeal on the issue before turning to more correction and instruction will come, but these five points, do not crave that which God has not divinely provided. In other words, be content. Number two, do not place anything or anyone above God in priority or devotion. In other words, be obedient. Number three, do not pursue sexual desires outside of God's design. In other words, be pure. Number four, do not persist in wickedness, resting upon God's long-suffering. In other words, be fearful. Fear God. And then finally, number five in our application, do not oppose the God-ordained authorities in the church of God. In other words, be submissive. And these were the five points that we saw from the first 14 verses in 1 Corinthians 10, and that was the message that I preached six, seven weeks ago now. These final words in verses 15 through chapter 11, verse 1, in these words, the issue is really about following the example of our Lord Jesus Christ and dying to self. It's about unity, not just in Christ as Savior, but in Christ as Lord. It's about living in constant determination to seek the very best for our brothers and our sisters in Christ, and for the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ, rather than pursuing our own desires or our own priorities. And the key verse, without a doubt, is verse 31, that we will get to in a little bit. So let's walk through this chapter as we learn. The Word of God. This will be a two-part message, by the way. I won't get through it all this morning. You'll have to come back this evening or listen to it online later on this week if you can't make it tonight to get the rest of the sermon. Chapter 15. Paul says this. I speak as to wise men, men, Excuse me, judge ye what I say. Paul has just finished giving the church at Corinth very clear examples of the consequences of sin. As he transitions, he tells them, look, folks, you're reasonable. You're reasonable, folks. I speak to you as if you are wise men. This is what is happening in many ways in the church right now. You speak to people, and it's not that they reject it because they don't believe it's true. They reject it because they disagree with it. Paul was saying, you're smart, you know the Bible, judge if what I'm saying is right or wrong. Judge for yourself if what I'm saying is unbiblical or if what I'm saying is unwise. Paul has given them many expectations in these chapters, and now he says, you be the judge. If what I have told you is a reflection of Jesus Christ, then you ought to obey it. If, if what I've told you is not a reflection of Jesus Christ, well, then you can ignore it. He's writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so that wasn't a concern to him. And we do this, don't we? We reject something not because it's unbiblical, but because it doesn't align with what we want or what we expect. This is what's happening in the issues of divorce and abortion and gender roles and homosexuality and so many more issues in the church right now. A man stands in the pulpit and he he dogmatically says that something is wrong And he gets scorned, and he sees a bunch of eyes roll, and people are scoffing him. And it's not because they believe what he's saying is untrue, it's because what he's saying is not what they want to hear, or what he's saying is not convenient, or what he's saying might turn some people off to this whole Christianity thing. Did you read the big news this week about the Presbyterian Church USA? USA? They voted three to one to allow their ministers to perform sodomite weddings. It's not a requirement, but it's an allowance. And here we have a bunch of apostate churches that are seeking to represent God. But they're so fearful about the numbers that they're losing that they're compromising the Word of God. And they're compromising the truth to try to bring people to the church. It's, it's apostasy. It's heresy. But the reason why this climate is what it is in the church today is because this is how we are naturally as humans. Without the humility to accept the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives, when we hear something that we don't like, we just don't want to hear it. And so Paul is saying, look, I'm speaking to you as people that understand. You you be the judge of what I'm saying. Prove me wrong. Take the scriptures and prove that what I'm saying is wrong. You won't be able to do it, Church of Corinth, because this is from God. Paul has said some things to this church that are hard for them to swallow. He said some things to this church that are hard for us to swallow. And he's saying to them, You're wise, so you judge whether or not this is true not a biased judgment of whether or not you like what I said or whether or not you think this is valid, but whether or not, in accordance with who God is and what God has spoken in the past, this is true. And so what is it that he's about to say? Let's take a look verse 16. He says, "...the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ?" Paul uses an example here, and he says this, he says, when the church comes together, one of the things it does is partake in what we would call communion, or sometimes we call it the Lord's Supper. At Legacy Baptist Church, we do this once a month. We alternate the morning service and the evening service, first Sunday of every month, and we we partake together in communion. There is reason to believe, historically speaking, that the New Testament church perhaps did it every time they came together. That every time they met, they came together and they partook in communion, as Paul calls it here, around the Lord's table. And regardless of how often they met, as they met together, one of the purposes of their assembling was the mutual fellowship, the corporate accountability and identification that came with the person of Jesus Christ through this ordinance that we call communion. And this is what Paul is saying in verse 16. When you partake of what he calls the cup of blessing, you are identifying yourself with the blood of Jesus Christ. And when you partake of the broken bread, you are identifying yourself with the body of Jesus Christ. Notice he doesn't say anything about spiritual effect. We're not talking about some sort of mystical union or spiritual union. This is simply a memorial. We see that... um, in scriptures quite clearly. We'll see it uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, preaching it in a couple of weeks as we talk about the Lord's Supper in that passage. It is a memorial of personal identification with Christ and with one another as believers in fellowship with Christ. And so he says in verse 17, as we continue, he says, For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Now, Paul is saying here that we as believers are expected to identify with Christ in the physical partaking in communion together because we have already identified with Christ in the spiritual, right? Salvation. We're identifying with Christ. We are publicly coming together and partaking of the a fruit of the vine, and we are partaking of the broken bread as a memorial of what Jesus Christ has done and to align ourselves with his death and with his sacrifice and to declare that we are in line with it. A memorial and an identification. But it's declaring something that has already happened inward. An inward decision by grace through faith and the finished work of Jesus Christ to accept him as our Savior. So we partake of this cup and of this bread, because we believe in Jesus' name. And so, though we are many individuals in this church, we are one church. One bride, if you will, because we identify with the same man. The Lord Jesus Christ. We have one head. We have one bridegroom. That is Christ. So we are one. And at the end of that verse, notice he says, we are all partakers of that one bread. Are we talking about the bread that we eat? The communion bread? Absolutely not. This is talking about the spiritual bread of life that's spoken of in John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. So Paul is using a metaphor here. He is kind of mixing his metaphors. He speaks of the physical communion being a picture, a memorial of that spiritual union that we have with Christ. So we are one bread because we are part of Jesus Christ who is the bread of life. We have partaken in eternal life with our Savior. So we aren't identified with Christ because we partake in communion We partake in communion because we have identified with Christ. But when we do partake in communion, we are, each time we do it, willingly and openly identifying ourselves with Jesus Christ. Not with our church. Not with your pastor. Not with the Baptist denomination. Not with fundamentalism. Not with the United States of America. Not even with the church. We are identifying ourselves specifically as a church with Christ. And this is what we Christians can forget. How we live our lives is not about us. Why we do what we do is not about us. Church is not about your pastor. Church is not about you. Church is about Christ. That is why we are here. We're doing what we're doing so that we can become what Christ wants us to become. You're here listening to the preaching of God's Word so that you can draw nearer to God. So that you can understand Him better. So that you can learn more about Him so that you can become more like Him and you can obey Him better. That's why you're here. We're here to sing praises unto His name. That's why we sing. It's not about us. It's not about our entertainment. It's not about what we want. It's not about what we need. Well, pastor, I'm just not feeling like I'm getting everything I need. Well, maybe you need to start changing your priorities a little bit And while you're coming to church. God did not save your soul from hell so that you can live for yourself. He didn't save your soul from hell so that you could live in sin without fear of judgment. He didn't save you from your sins so that you could dive back into your sins without that nagging conscience that says, you're on your way to hell, you're on your way to hell, you know you're a sinner, you know what you're doing is wrong. That's not why God saved you. God did not set you free from the law of sin so that you could live free from the law of Christ. Can I say that again? God did not set you free from the law of sin so that you could live free from the law of Christ. God did not call you out of the world so that you could spend your days looking exactly like the world. When you partake in communion, you're telling God that Christ's life of selfless love, personal sacrifice and submission, absolute holiness is the standard by which you are going to model your life every day. So Paul is giving this example of the physical which reflects the spiritual. And he's doing it for a purpose. But first, before he hits that purpose, he's going to give another layer of example to help us relate these topics. He says, Behold Israel after the flesh, verse 18. Are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Paul says these things as a teacher, but in many ways the concept is actually very common sense. Those who were members of national Israel those who partook in the sacrifices in the temple in Israel, as a part of their membership with Israel, national citizenship, they sacrificed on the altar in Jerusalem. That was a part of what they had the privilege of doing because they were Israelites. Now, it is both natural and expected that the physical actions of an Israelite would naturally support his heritage. In other words, Because he is an Israelite, he's going to sacrifice on the altar. When he sacrifices on the altar, he associates himself with that altar of sacrifice and with his nation, right? Makes sense. When I get up and I sing the national anthem and I place my hand on my heart, I'm associating ourselves with that flag and I'm associating myself with my country. I'm saying this is my country. I'm, I, I am a part of this nation, I am a citizen of this nation, and that's my flag. When an Israelite sacrificed on the altar, he says that is the altar unto God, I am associating myself with that altar. In other words, I'm associating myself with the sacrifice, and I'm associating myself with the God of the sacrifice, and I'm associating myself with my nation, which is a covenant nation under God. Paul says when we partake in communion, We are associating ourselves with God's church. We are associating ourselves with God, and we are associating ourselves with His Son, Jesus Christ, and with that sacrifice. That's what Paul is trying to say here. It is the most natural thing for God's people to publicly identify themselves with Jesus Christ and with fellow believers. It is a natural thing for a believer to be part of the communion of Jesus Christ and the church And it's as natural for, it should be as natural for us as it was for Israel to be a part of the communion with the altar because they were born and circumcised the eighth day according to the law and a part of their nation. So what's Paul saying? Paul's given these illustrations. He's given the illustration of Israel. He's given the illustration of the communion. He says, I'm speaking to you as wise men. Judge ye what I say. What's he saying? Well, in the next verse he says, what say I then? I'm going to tell you what I'm saying here. He intends to answer what he's saying in verses 19 and following. Paul is not saying that the idol is anything in particular, nor is he saying that that which is sacrificed or offered in sacrifice to idols is anything. But as we know, this really has nothing to do with what is being offered or what is not being offered, it has everything to do with why it's being offered and the spirit behind the offering, as he speaks of this concept again of offering meat to idols. And this is the reality of our liberty in Christ, folks. It, our liberty in Christ, our Christian life is not about what we can do and what we can't do. We need to get out of our minds that this Christian life is a bunch of do's and don'ts. Because it's not. That's not what the Christian life is about. We're talking about motivations for doing things and the spiritual results of our decisions and actions. It's not about a list of prohibitions. It's about pleasing the one who died for us. And if pleasing the one who died for us means giving up some things that should not be, um, in this life, that should not be uh, considered a burden to us. It should be considered an honor for us, right? Doesn't that make sense? If giving something up in this life for the one who died for us is something that we deem necessary for His glory, that should not be considered a burden, that should be considered an honor. It should be considered our reasonable service. You hear it from soldiers that come back from war all the time, right? Sure, they're not happy that they lost a limb or that they can't walk anymore but what do they say? They said, I did it for my country. I did it for my country. There is a sense that it was worth it because of what I did it for. I did it for my family back home. I did it so that they could live in peace and happiness and comfort and prosperity. And so it's not that they say, oh, what a burden. I mean, certainly I'm sure it is, in a manner of speaking. But it is an honor for them to sacrifice something for what they love, for who they care about. Fathers know this. It's not a burden to sacrifice for our families. It's not a burden to put in the time necessary to earn enough money to provide for our families. It's not, and now it may make us tired, it may be difficult, but we love our families. We're going to provide for and protect our families. And there's that compulsion there because it's what we love. And why don't we translate that in the Christian life sometimes? Why does that work when we're a father? Or work when we're a soldier? Or work when we're, a, to a lesser extent perhaps, a politician? Or work for a public servant? But it doesn't work for our relationship with Christ. When he sacrificed his all for us in love, why can't we see the things that are not furthering the gospel of Jesus Christ, that are not helping our brethren love the Lord, that are not moving us forward for Christ and say, okay, I'm going to set them aside, not because I necessarily have to, but because it's what's best. It's what's best. And I want what's best. And it's not even just what's best for me. It's what's best for The gospel. It's what's best for my brethren. It's what's best for the testimony of Christ. And the blessing, the privilege of this liberty is that because it is indeed liberty, that means we don't have to become something we're not. We don't have to become clones to glorify our Savior. Isn't that a blessing? That you don't come to this church and have to become a member of this church and then fall into line with you better wear this, you better think this, you better say this, you better do this. Everyone has to look the same and be the same and if you're not the same, then there's something wrong with you spiritually. And you don't have to be that way. It's you loving Christ and then making decisions because you love Christ as to what's best for Christ. Testimony, the Gospels testimony, and the conscience of your brothers and sisters in Christ. That is what it means to live within our liberties. And notice how Paul articulates it in verse 20. He says, But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God, and I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. So we're still, okay, is it okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Well, he's already answered that in the last chapter. Yes, it is. It's fine. Spiritually speaking, we know that an idol is nothing. But he talked about conscience. He talked about the testimony of the gospel. He's talked about all of these aspects. And now he says he would be, he's very clear in this, You know, when they do sacrifice these things to to idols, they're, they're, they're sacrificing them to devils, to demons. And you do not want to be identifying yourself with demons. So you do need to be careful when you exercise your liberty that in doing so you are not exercising it to where you are identifying yourself with devils. See, the unbelieving world partakes in certain activities, and those activities are openly associated with humanism, with paganism, with selfishness, with vice. And when we, as Christians, exercise our liberty in associating ourselves with these activities, we cannot help but likewise be associating ourselves with the negative things that these, that these activities stand for. Even if that's not our intent. So we talked several months ago about several things as we talked about our lawful but not expedient series. We talked about um, substances and we talked about um, dress and we talked about music and we talked about amusements and all of these things. And as we talked about each one of these, we recognize that there are elements of amusement, there are elements of substances, all of these different areas in our lives where even though perhaps we have the liberty in Christ to pursue it, even the world around us recognizes that this doesn't have a very good reputation. Let's take alcohol, for instance. There's no explicit command in the scripture that says you should not drink alcohol. Or you, you must not drink alcohol. You shall not drink alcohol. We've talked about this. But there's plenty of scripture that warns against it. And, and all it takes is looking around at the world around us. How does the secular world associate alcohol? Well, you can't drink it until you're 21. What does that say about it? Well, you have to, be in, have to have a designated driver if you go out and you drink. Why? What events is it associated with in our world? How many laws are on the books pertaining to the problems that come with consumption of it? And so we see that even though it's not something that is explicitly in Scripture prohibited, As far as chapter and verse, you can't go to chapter and verse. At the same time, what are we associating with when we partake? Is there any scenario where you are associating with Jesus Christ by partaking in alcohol? Is there any scenario where you are furthering your testimony for Christ by partaking in it? How many scenarios could you simply partaking be associated with devils? With something wrong. With something negative. With something antichrist. That is the spirit of every single decision we make in this life. That is the spirit of every decision. What we watch on TV, what we listen to on the radio, what CDs we own, what movies we own, where we go on the internet, what we drink, what we eat. What we think, what we say, where we, where we go, what we do, who we do it with, what we wear. They ought to all be filtered through the reality of what we are associating with and what does this do to the name of Christ. If somebody saw you partaking in any activity during the week and knew you were a Christian, would that reflect poorly on Christ? If so, should you be doing it? See, because this Christian life isn't about you. The whole point is death to self. Alive unto Christ. That's the whole point. And it's not about do's and don'ts. I'm never going to hand out a list of do's and don'ts in this church. Nor should a church. It's about Christ's testimony in the world. The gospel's Testimony of the world. And, as we've mentioned many times, the conscience of your brother, which is a whole uh, different sermon, which is online if you want to listen to this. And so what Paul wants us to avoid at all costs is negative association. Hurting the, the, the testimony of Jesus Christ and of the gospel through our actions. That's what verse 20 says. And notice what he says in verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils, you cannot be a partaker of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Paul makes it very clear to us that we can't have it both ways, folks. You can't claim to be a disciple of Christ and live a life driven by the lusts that are compelled by the sins of Satan. You can't identify yourself with the sacrifices of Jesus Christ in word and then openly identify yourself with devils in real life and think that you're doing things right. God does not, nor has He ever been fooled into believing what we say above what we do. We might be able to convince fellow Christians that there's no inconsistency between our sin and our identity with Jesus Christ. That's what the church is busy doing today, right? They're busy justifying their sin. They're busy trying to say how we can believe in all of these sins and say that these sins are okay and at the same time say that we love God. And they're spending all of their time trying to justify their sin. And Paul says here, you can't have it both ways, folks. You can't do that. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. It doesn't work. And that's what the church in Corinth was trying to do, were they not? I mean, they had a man in the church of Corinth that was in an inappropriate sexual relationship with his mother-in-law. And he was also seeking to be identified with Christ. The church was going to law one against another and bickering and trying to take the possessions of another man in the body and trying to convince people that they were servants of the living God. But for all that, people might be fooled or convinced, or culture might say, Yep, that's okay, God is never fooled. And that is why Paul wrote what he wrote in the first 14 verses about consequences. Look at verse 22. He says, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? See, the fact of the matter is God is very jealous over His children. And in light of the example that we saw in verses 1-14, through 14, we know exactly what Paul is trying to sell us. Israel spent their entire existence thinking that they were stronger than God. They spent their entire existence provoking God to jealousy through following after idols and following selfishness and following wickedness. And what we learn from their example is that they were overthrown in the wilderness. What we learn from their example is that they were destroyed. They lost out on all of the blessings that they could have had. They never made it to the promised land because they refused to submit to God. They thought that they could follow that cloud by day and that pillar by night, but worship the golden calf in between. And it didn't work. didn't work then, and what Paul's trying to tell us is it's not going to work now. As we as Christians abuse our liberties in Christ, seeking to convince others that our personal indulgences and sin are lawful in Christ... we'll find ourselves in chastening. As we as Christians pursue our own desires and our own lusts at the expense of identification with Jesus and His Word, we partake in that which identifies us, therefore, with the devil, while bodily and unapologetically claiming identification to Christ. And that just doesn't work. And so he says this, we've seen uh, the verse, this is the second time we have seen this verse come up, just slightly different wording in 1 Corinthians. He says, all things are lawful uh, for me, verse 23, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. That was actually what kicked in our lawful but not expedient series uh, several months ago was that verse um, several chapters ago. So we come full circle in our thoughts. We see that we have been given great freedom in Christ. Freedom to serve Him according to our own abilities and talents. We don't have to become something we're not for Christ. Freedom to express our love to God in many ways. We're not stuck into a template of how, how to worship. You have to say this and do this and, um, uh, follow this template. Great freedom in the means by which we reach the lost for Christ. We talked about that this morning in Sunday school, all the different angles that we can come at trying to show people their need for for salvation. Freedom to live lives that are joyful and happy and complete. Freedom to marry and be given in marriage, freedom to have children or to not have children. Freedom to go places, to do things, to see the world. These are freedoms we've been given in Christ, but that freedom according to God's word will if you are a properly balanced christian living in your liberty not legalistic not licentious or using taking license if you're living within your liberty your freedom will be naturally tempered in your spirit by the deepest compulsion to ensure that every action both in intent and in perception associates you with the righteous character of Jesus Christ and the deepest reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you will be careful because you are a testimony of Christ and of his gospel. Conversely, the believer will take every step necessary to ensure that he is not associating with the philosophies or ideologies or compulsions or desires of the world. He will limit himself in any and every way necessary, and it may be different for each of us based upon culture, based upon personal temptations, based upon um, the people that we're around, but we will limit ourselves in any and every way necessary in order to properly reflect Jesus Christ and properly reflect the gospel in the eyes of both our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and in the eyes of the world around us. And that is where we're going to stop for today. We'll apply in just a moment. Next time we're going to finish this chapter and understand exactly how it is Paul suggests we guard ourselves against these sinful associations and how we can decide whether something is okay or whether it is not. But let's apply through three points what we've learned this morning as we close. Number one, God sees the heart, yes, but men see actions god sees the heart but folks men see actions for years in evangelicalism christians have sought to justify looking like the world or thinking like the world or acting like the world by quoting first samuel 16:7 you know where i'm going But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as men seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Christians have tirelessly claimed this verse to prove that it really doesn't matter what people may think of us because God knows my heart. It really doesn't matter What you say I'm doing right or wrong because God sees my heart. really doesn't matter what's happening on the outside because God sees my heart. This line of reasoning seeks to claim that our actions ought to be interpreted within the framework of our intentions. May I say that again? When we use this argument, we are trying to claim or trying to argue that our actions ought to be interpreted within the framework of our intentions. In other words, don't look at my actions and judge me Listen to my intention. Judge me by my intentions, not my actions. But if if what Paul is telling us today is true, and by the way, it is, then it seems God would have us carefully weigh our actions in order that our actions would properly reflect our intentions. That seems logical, right? Instead of doing things and telling people, well, don't judge me by my actions, judge me by my intentions, how about... You do actions that reflect your intentions. I love God. How about I act like it? I want to serve God. How about I act like it? God is number one. How about I act like it? How about we let our actions reflect our intentions instead of telling people, don't judge me by my actions, judge me by my intentions. If we intend to glorify God, we should not be content simply with our intentions. We should carefully consider how our individual actions properly reflect our intentions. It's absolutely true that God sees our hearts and He knows our intentions. But if God was only interested in our heart, if God was only interested in our good intentions, why would He have left us here after we got saved? If all God wanted was a group of people with good intentions, then every single believer in this room has become everything that God wants him to be already. I mean, after all, we accepted Christ. We love him enough to to be all in. We're there. But that's not the case, is it? On the contrary, God has left us here not so that we can continue to spout out good intentions, but so that we can reflect him in our actions. And that brings us to our second point. Number two. Number one, God sees the heart, but men see actions. Number two, your liberties identify you either with Jesus Christ or with Satan or with devils. Paul makes it absolutely clear that Christians have the liberty to eat meat offered to idols. But as we have seen throughout the series, liberty is not the issue here. So let me ask you a couple questions. Are the things that you do throughout the week Which are identifiable, either in the eyes of a brother in Christ or the eyes of the lost. Are they identifiable with the world or are they identifiable with Christ? When people see what you do, would they identify it with Christ or with the world? Are there movies you watch or places you go or things you say or things you listen to which... A person would look at and reasonably associate with sinful pleasures and worldly lusts as opposed to righteousness and integrity. And notice I used the word reasonable there. Which a person would look at and reasonably associate with sinful pleasures and worldly lusts. There will always be Christians, folks, which have come so far out of the world that they associate anything that touches the world with sin. There will always be Christians that think you're a sinner because you own a television. There will always be Christians that think you're a sinner if you're not in a three-piece suit, men, at church. There will always be those. These Christians reject the innocent because of its proximity to the guilty. If you are near the guilty, then you're guilty. They reject the pure because it lives in the same region as the impure. Now if this had to be the case, if we had to template ourselves by them, then we'd all live in monasteries. Because the most conservative in our ranks do that, do they not? They shut themselves up from the world, and they just don't associate in any way, shape, or form. And so what we are saying is that are you doing things which a reasonable person, an unbeliever that comes over to your house and sees what you're watching on TV a church member who you know is fairly reasonable in their understanding of Scripture, would they reasonably associate what you watched or what you said or what you did or where you went or what you're wearing with sinful pleasures and worldly lusts, or would they associate with righteousness and integrity? Are the things that you do within the course of a week casting a shadow Upon your testimony for Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is warning against. He's warning against living in our freedom at the expense of our testimony. He's not concerned that you don't know your liberties in 1 Corinthians. He's concerned that your love for your liberties have caused you to sacrifice your loyalty and your testimony to Jesus Christ that he can have in you and through you. And this is the warning that Paul gives in verse... Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He says this, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. You can't serve them both. You will either be reflecting one or the other. You can say you reflect Christ, but your actions will show who you actually are reflecting. You can... Say you're a believer, but your actions will prove it. Third and final point. Number one, God sees the heart, but men see your actions. Number two, your liberties identify you either with Jesus Christ or with Satan. Number three, God is jealous for you to identify with him. There are consequences, folks, to pursuing our liberties at the expense of our testimony or Christ's testimony. Like Israel in days gone by, with many of us, the Lord might not be well pleased. And though this may not mean a plague or fiery serpents or the earth swallowing you up, it may mean other casualties. We just came out of six weeks of family conference, right? And in that six weeks of family conference, we talked about some warnings to our families about uh, dangers. the da- Some dangers that come with passing our faith from one generation to the next. And it may very well be that your living in your liberties at the expense of the testimony of Jesus Christ may not necessarily hurt you, but it may reflect inconsistency in your life and intent that will impress themselves deeply upon your children's hearts so that your children will pursue selfishness. It's also a grave truth that compromise is a very slippery slope, folks. Oftentimes when we step off the edge into compromise, we don't stop until we've hit the very bottom. And perhaps the thing which you assert to be living within your liberties is over the course of time actually going to draw you beyond your Christian liberty and into sin. I don't know what the consequences might be, but the whole point of 1 Corinthians 10 is, is in the context of liberty and it is warning about Israel's sin and the consequences in connection to our liberties in Christ.